This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, which is very much unlike our normal episodes. If this is your first one, seriously, go check out any of our other episodes first. And even if you have heard the show before, but you didn't hear my first episode on Bhutan, I would check that one out first as well. Today is going to be me telling you about my trip to Bhutan. As a quick recap, this is all part of the Climate Ride fundraiser that I held, so listeners of this show uh, contributed, and I ended up on this trip uh, along with approximately 30 other people who had all raised money themselves, all the funds going to fight climate change and uh, and also pay for the cost of the trip, much of which went to uh, the country of Bhutan itself. They have uh, high fees for entering the country, and that pays for things like their health insurance and their environmental programs and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of things as they uh, develop as a country. So that's how I ended up there logistically, financially. But of course, to actually get there is a completely different story. So uh, to arrive in, uh, in Bhutan is to fly in to the city of Paro, which is not particularly centrally located, nor is it the capital city, but they do have the one international airport because it's the one place in the country with a tract of land flat enough and large enough to fit the landing strip. 20 miles out at 15,000 feet, Captain Tearing prepares for his approach. Time to switch off the autopilot. There's a lot of navigation equipment that helps you come into landing and then the approach is much easier. Paro, the ones we have, uh, it's quite obsolete. And then there's no way of putting advanced navigation because of the terrain. There's no option other than to land manually at Paro. This airport has no radar to guide planes in. Captain Tearing must make his final approach through a long, narrow valley. And just 1,600 feet before the airport, there's a high ridge. Until the plane passes it, the runway's hidden from view. It's the trickiest part. Once the plane makes its turn around the ridge, it must be perfectly lined up with the runway at just the right height. It should then be 100 feet off the ground and seconds away from touchdown. That's the theory. Now for the real thing. Captain Tearing is now entering the valley and he's flying just a few hundred feet from the mountainside. Terrain ahead. Terrain ahead, pull up. Avoid terrain. 500. He's descending fast, and the runway is still out of visual range. At last, the ridge comes into view, and Captain Tearing makes his crucial turn. (laughs) 
That was from the PBS documentary series City in the Sky. You could find just that clip if you searched for world's most dangerous landing spot, just to give you a sense of what it's like to enter the country. Personally, I, I didn't find it scary or, or disturbing at all. I think some people very much do. I, I sort of feel like I've seen enough movies where a like a fighter jet flies through a very narrow canyon that I just sort of felt like I was in the back seat of one of those as we turned left and then right and then left and then right, banking through this valley uh, to finally come out on the uh, uh, onto the airfield. It, it was definitely a unique experience, but the real experience of Bhutan, the, the the interaction with the culture that will become prevalent throughout your entire stay in the country starts the moment you step off the plane because their airport is built in this beautiful, traditional Bhutanese style, of course, with modern amenities, but it becomes apparent right off the bat that you're in someplace very different. So day one for us was very low-key. Uh, we flew into Paro, transferred about an hour or so over to the capital city of Timpu, and just got settled in for the night. So in the, in the meantime, let me tell you about some of the old history of Bhutan. Of course, it's a country in the middle of Asia, in the middle of the Himalayas. It has some very old history. I'm only going to go back as far as, well, let's say the 700s or so. That's when they believe that Buddhism came to Bhutan. So in, in Bhutan, they, they basically have three figures that they, let's say, deify for simplicity. There's Buddha, unsurprisingly, the Buddha. And then there's this guy in Bhutan who they refer to colloquially as the second Buddha. This is the guy who they believe brought Buddhism to Bhutan or, or to the region. And the third guy that they deify is uh, this person they call the Unifier. And he's the person uh, jumping forward now into the 1600s, who was the first to bring the country together into a unified nation state instead of just a bunch of warring fiefdoms. And so, you know, coming from a country like America, where we are ostensibly quite secular this comes off as a little strange you know there there's the uh there's the praise of like, you know, the lord figure buddha that's not that strange having a second buddha is a little strange is unique to bhutan in, in that way and then mixing in this this character from your history who's it's sort of like our george washington like that's that feels extra strange. It's sort of like if the U.S. had actually been founded as a Christian country and they had elevated George Washington like to the level of the Holy Ghost. So you got the father, the son, and the George Washington. And those are the three figures you put up in all of your temples and like halls of Congress. So, like, so that, that super mixing of the religious and, and the secular is strange at first glance, but on the other hand, it makes perfect sense. You know, these these three figures in their history probably did have more to do with the shaping of the culture of the country than anyone else. Buddha, obviously, just Buddhism in general. The second Buddha, the dude who actually brought it to this country, and so it's pretty important. 
And and then the third is uh, is the unifier and just a couple of quick details. You know, besides being the first to wrangle these fiefdoms into a nation state, he really guided not only the adoption of the specific form of Buddhism that they practice in Bhutan, but he also instituted the form of government that lasted for 400 years or so and really is still very much there today. So they have this divided government between Buddhist religion and their administrative sector. So they have these large, um, what they're called zongs, castle, fortress, monasteries. So the politicians work there. They're used as forts for defense and also monasteries where the monks live, perform their rituals and all of that. So all of this happens together pretty seamlessly. So he's the one who really created this administrative system of a blended, you know, religious and political side to run the country in effect. And today the flag of Bhutan continues this tradition with a divided field of yellow and orange, the yellow representing the secular power of the king and the saffron orange symbolizing the practice of religion and the power of Buddhism. So clearly a very, very powerful impact this guy had. And interesting note, uh, when he died, uh, according to Wikipedia in 1651, the power that he had was effectively passed to the local governors. You know, it's a very mountainous area, so each valley it can very, can very well be understood as uh, its own unique town um, with its own power structure and everything. So the governors of these different sectors sort of acquired power after this uh, this guy died. But in order to forestall what would be an inevitable struggle for power and it would sort of devolve into warlordism. The people literally conspired to keep the death of the unifier secret for possibly 54 years. And during that time, they would issue orders in his name and and just explain, well, he was on an extended silent retreat. So that's about how things went for 300 years or so. Of course, the the power did sort of dissolve over time. The governors of the different sectors did devolve into this sort of warlordism, and it wasn't until the early 1900s that they took another turn. So for day two, we got on the bikes. We just did a nice leisurely sort of get ourselves acquainted with the bikes, uh, have a nice introduction ride. I think we probably rode about 16 kilometers in total. It's like, you know, riding to the store and back, basically. And uh, here's what happened. It killed me. I was in a minor panic after that first day considering how poorly my body reacted. It was a combination of the altitude, you know, the thin air, the mountain bikes I wasn't used to with the big, fat, inefficient tires, the hills that were steeper than anything I'm used to. And frankly, I didn't have the opportunity to train nearly as much as I wish I could have getting ready for this. And boy, that first day, uh, 
as I said, I was very, very concerned for how the rest of this ride was going to go. We, we rode, as I said, around town, but then primarily up to this uh, hilltop called Buddha Point, where there is, unsurprisingly, a gigantic golden Buddha, which I believe turns out is being funded by some uh, some f- foreign interests who have a lot of money and apparently a lot of interest in Buddhism. So th- this this giant gold Buddha statue is uh, it's quite a thing to behold and it's still being constructed that sort of the the temple and, and the buddha itself is there but they're still building out the whole pavilion area around it and here's what i would say about bhutan in general and this goes for every temple you're ever going to walk into is that nearly every square inch is decorated in some way or another and and that is never more true than inside one of these temples, which, of course, you're not allowed to take pictures in. So altar in the middle, giant golden pillars, every inch of which is carved meticulously with you know, fine detail, mandalas on the ceiling, small Buddha statues lining the walls that people have purchased for, I believe, $1,000 to have their own little small Buddha statue in, in the large temple. It's a really amazing experience. This is the first temple that we went into. And even through my exhaustion and uh, and oxygen-deprived haze, I knew that like this is a pretty interesting place. They uh they do some good craftsmanship here. And so after after experiencing Buddha Point and, and that temple, we ferried ourselves down just by bus, got some lunch, and then did a little bit more exploring just not on the bikes, but uh, we went to a little history museum to see how Bhutanese used to live in in their old old style homes, and also to their little library where they were very proud to mention that they have the officially sanctioned world's largest published book on display with their Guinness World Record certificate and everything, which is just uh, as you would imagine an incredibly large book. I don't know, six feet by six feet wide or so, uh, lays in a very large plastic crate <laughs> that you can see through. But it's a, uh, it's basically a photo montage. It could be a coffee table book if you had a large enough coffee table, uh, but that's sort of the gist of it. It's, uh, many, many uh, very high quality photos of Bhutan, uh, on sale for the low, low price of $15,000 to anyone who just feels really strongly about supporting Bhutan as a nation. And the last thing I'll say on, on this general topic between the history museum where you see the, the old, uh, you know, building being constructed and getting these first senses of the design that is, is prevalent throughout Bhutan is, uh, is their architecture. And, and I really encourage you to look up some good examples of Bhutanese architecture. They're really beautiful and, and so, sort of, uh, deceptively simple at, at the same time. The base of buildings are almost always smaller than the tops. You know, if you, if you kind of think of traditional Western style, European style architecture, you think of, you know, like, a castle with a big base and then it kind of gets smaller as it goes up or, you know, any, any houses are usually follow. They either sit within their own footprint or get smaller as they go higher. And Bhutan is, is, uh, the opposite within the confines of, 
you know, the architectural and uh, structural engineering that allows it. But as you get to the second and third floors, they get sort of wider. They have these very decorative areas around windows and, and along eaves. And then the most distinctive feature of Bhutanese architecture is these big, wide, wide, wide roofs. And I was very excited to learn the reason why they have these very wide roofs. So what's very common in Bhutan is for them to put foodstuffs onto their roofs or into the space that we would consider an attic to allow them to dry over the course of weeks or months, uh, usually chili peppers, that sort of thing, but you know, whatever. So this uh, architectural style was created to allow uh, food to be put in the attic and for there to be a lot of crosswind to help dry the vegetables. But if you're going to have a giant gap between the top floor where you live and your roof, you're clearly going to want your roof to extend quite a bit out to prevent rain from coming in. So that's how you get this big space between the top floor and the roof itself and the necessity for the very wide roofs that stick far out from the sides of the buildings. And the, the effect of it is amazingly beautiful, but it all comes from this very functional use of architecture to, to do a service for themselves that, that they need to help store their food. Now, please excuse the quick interruption of myself to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, which now goes well beyond shaving. They deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that'll leave your tush feeling tingly clean. For instance, their amber and lavender calming body cleanser is really something to behold. I've never smelled anything like it. Uh, but all of the Dollar Shave Club products are great and made with top shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. Plus, shipping is free with your membership. And since they have so many great items, here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just five bucks, you can get their daily essentials starter set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, their amazing butt wipes, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, and anything else you need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Buddhism as I experienced it in Bhutan. And to be clear, I am not giving a lecture on Buddhism. I am not the person to go to for that. I just want to say what it's like to ask about Buddhism in a place like Bhutan and what types of answers you get or what what amount can you really glean from that. And in my experience, what you end up with is many, many different answers to the same question, depending on who you ask. So I have just a few examples. One, uh, peacocks are everywhere. The, the, not the birds, actually. You don't see peacock 
the birds, even though I believe that they do live in Bhutan naturally, but uh, we never saw them. And my guide actually didn't think they lived in Bhutan, but I think they are native to the area, it, it part of the subcontinent in there somewhere. But in Bhutanese Buddhism, they definitely have peacock feathers all over the place. Their equivalent of holy water is almost always, or maybe literally always, poured out of sort of a, you know, looks like a tea kettle sort of a thing with peacock feathers sticking out of it as, as the primary adornment to this object. And so we, we asked a few times, you know, what's up with the peacock feathers? What does that mean? What's the significance? And some people just say, hey, it's lucky. Some people say uh, they have no idea. And the the closest we got, I think, was one monk explained that peacocks purify water because they can consume poison and purify it into water. And so we use peacock feathers to purify our water as we use it in our ceremonies. And we asked, wait, is that true? Peacocks can consume poison and purify it into water? I'd never heard that. And he said, oh, yeah, definitely. That's definitely true. And the best I can come up with is that peacocks can eat poisonous things. They can eat poisonous snakes, maybe some other, you know, plants or things like that, that a, a human would get sick from eating. And so probably thousands of years ago, people watch that happening, see that peacocks can consume these things that are otherwise poisonous, and then sort of, sort of build a story on top of that about, I guess they can purify it somehow. If a peacock can consume a poisonous snake and live, then maybe I should use their feathers in my water and that'll purify the water so that I can live. Who knows? But that's where we end up today. Uh, another big one is the number 108. We stumbled on this one, came to a big temple, and there were uh, small stupas all the way around it. And we asked, how many stupas are there here? And the answer was 108. And we asked, is there a significance specifically to the number 108? Why'd they choose that? And I asked this question many times and got different answers every time. Like, for instance, asked one of the guides, hey, what's up with the number 108 as far as you know? And and he said, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I've always said that the number 108 is important because the, the complete canon of the words of Buddha has been compiled into 108 volumes. And I said, well, yeah, but that's probably, you probably got your cause and effect reversed, right? Like they probably wrote it in 108 volumes because the number 108 was already important. He's like, yeah, no, that's probably true. I don't know. And I don't know, somewhere else, they, they're talking about how there are 108 earthly temptations, and so that's important. But again, the cause and effect is probably reversed. Uh, this, coming from Wikipedia, says, in Buddhism, according to a monk with an unpronounceable name, this number is reached by multiplying the senses, smell, touch, taste, hearing, sight, and consciousness by whether they are painful, pleasant, or neutral, and then again by whether these are internally generated or externally occurring, and yet again by past, present, and future. Finally, we get 108 feelings when you multiply 6 times 3 times 2 times 3. Again, though, I have my questions. One monk we were on a tour with said uh, very factually, the reason there are 108 stupas around this temple and the reason that the number 108 is so important is because you get 108 
by multiplying the 12 zodiac signs by the nine planets. And we all said, oh, interesting. Okay, that that seems like something foundational, you know, 12 zodiac signs, nine planets. You're probably not getting your cause and effect reversed, uh, except you are, because yeah, a couple of minutes later, you realize, well, wait a second, they only found Pluto in 1930, and clearly this number has been important since before that. So clearly the real answer is that it's very likely no one knows, and that 108 is often seen as the answer, and then the work being done is backwards to figure out what the question is. And as many of us know, you'd have to construct a computer the size of a planet to calculate what the real question actually is. So I say all of this not to poke fun at Buddhism, though maybe just a little, but uh, to point out how interesting it must be to base your society as they do on, on something that is, on one hand, very universal, Buddhism, but on the other hand, very malleable, in, in that everyone has slightly or even drastically different understandings of the meanings of, of all of these shared stories. And there's so many of them. There are you know thousands of gods and demigods. And, and so to, to understand it all is basically impossible. You have to be a monk for your whole life, pretty much, to, to get a real grasp of these stories. And uh, yeah, and, and so there's just this sort of lack of, uh, uh, of really firm shared understanding. Uh, but of course, on the third hand, we could argue that we have some of the very similar problems. You know, we have very different understandings of our laws and constitution from person to person, depending on who you ask. Uh, it's ask someone about the Second Amendment. Uh, so it, it's hard to say how different it really is. Now, for day three, that was the big ride. It was just the second day of riding. As I said, the first one nearly killed me. And the second day is about, I don't know, three or four times as long. But that's a little misleading because two-thirds of it was downhill. It was that first third, though, that, that really did it. You know, the I said in the first day, there was some, like, rolling hills, and we kind of climbed a little hill. And the, the total ride was about 16 kilometers, somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, the second day... The first 16 kilometers were straight up. We climbed a frickin' mountain. Because uh, that's what you have to do. If you want to get from Tempu to Punaka, as I always say, you're going to have to climb a mountain. So uh, so that's how that ride went. Um, I think I did better than I expected because I expected to actually die and not be able to make it up the mountain. But everyone did. Uh, including me. So uh, that went better than expected. I, I later commented to uh, another rider after we had come down the other side, which is one of the most amazingly fun rides I've ever done. I said, you know, coming down the other side was so fun that it almost erased the misery and torture of getting up the mountain to begin with. And she thought about that for a second. She said, yeah, Sort of like giving birth. And I think that's about what you need to know about that bike ride. Now, 
as I told you before, there was a lot of ancient history to Bhutan on to turn now to modern history. So it was in the early 1900s that the the old system, the dual uh, monastic uh, Buddhist combined with administrative political system, start, uh, you know, was starting to break down. Or I guess before that, it was starting to break down. Uh, you know, as I said, the uh, the power structure had really begun to dwindle, maybe right from the beginning after the original unifier passed away. And so, as was very predictable, power sort of uh, divided into these different governorships of, of the different areas of Bhutan. And so, by the mid-1800s, they were in a civil war with each other, as you would imagine— and so the Civil War came to an end, and, and the governors, you know, probably had a little bit of an uneasy peace with each other because, you know, one governor was always going to be a little bit more powerful than another. And uh, then to make things worse or better or more complicated or whatever, of course, you will not be surprised to find that the British were also traipsing around the area. Of course, they still uh, controlled India at the time, and it was the early 1900s. I mean, the British were everywhere traipsing around, trying to decide who to trade with, who to go to war with, who to subjugate, etc. And so they uh, were doing their geopolitical chess game, as, as they always were, and they came into Bhutan and were sort of uh, wanting to, I don't know, have a bit of a relationship with them after their civil war had ended. And and one of the most powerful governors at the time sort of saw these these British as an opportunity. If, if he could get in good with them because they are so powerful, he could like sort of get a little rub off of their power onto himself and that's what happens. So he, he kind of becomes buddies with the British. He, he goes on a trip with them and, and sort of acts as a mediator between the British and Tibet at one point. And so it's, it's not written anywhere, but my guide had a really interesting theory that it was probably the British who literally gave this guy the idea that Bhutan needed a king. Cause frankly, it sounds like a very British thing to do. Not the Bhutanese person necessarily was thinking, hey, maybe I can use this to rise to ultimate power, although maybe, but clearly there was a little bit of a kerfuffle going on, a little bit of disunity, and uh, any good Brit at the time would have come into that situation and said, well, <laughs> you know what you need, a king. And so... um that's exactly what happened in 1907. They converted from their old dual system of monastic and administrative government to a hereditary absolute monarch. And now we have had five of these kings. It was the fourth king of Bhutan who uh, began to introduce the concept of democracy before abdicating the throne to his son. So we now have the fifth king of Bhutan in place right now and a Again, very similar to uh, the UK, a parliamentary democracy with a hereditary monarchy sort of on the side for decoration. Now, day four was a relative walk in the park. We stayed in Punaka 
and just sort of explored around a bit. We uh, started the day at a local food market. And here's what you need to know about Bhutanese food. First of all, they don't consider chilies to be a spice. They consider them to be a vegetable. That tells you almost everything you need to know. And the other experience of note I had at this market is I ate one tiny grain of a Szechuan pepper, which I describe as tasting like what a seasoning would taste like if it was invented by Willy Wonka. It was an experience. It evolved over time. It took like three minutes to eat this one bud of a pepper plant because it started sort of mild and then got spicy and then made your tongue and the roof of your mouth go numb and then like made you have a a brand new emotion you didn't know existed before and then sort of evolved in other ways that are indescribable. And so uh, we all sort of uh, gathered around and uh, one person would eat one and say, oh boy. And the next person who would walk up, they would say, oh, no, you got to try this. And so there's this like, wa- it was like the wave in a stadium, you know, as the, uh, as each person is in their own moment of experience over this, uh, you know, each one of them having a three-minute experience with the Szechuan pepper. Uh, that, that was a, that was quite a moment. A couple other uh, things for, uh, for the day. We uh, joined a couple other points for the day. We went to a, a, a real-life, full-size, amazing zong. As I said, I described them as a castle, fortress, monastery. They are all of those things. They The government works there the uh, monks live there the ceremonies are taking place Uh, it's it's amazing Uh, we were there when they were preparing for the annual celebration for the unifier on on the anniversary of the unifier's death so they're putting up more decorations than are usually there and, and like the place is splendid and then they add more decorations on top of that. So we got to see all of that in process. And uh, and then the group uh, split at, at one point in the day. Some went uh, mildly whitewater rafting. Uh, myself and a few others went on another hike, went through real-life terraced uh, croplands, the, the likes of which you're used to only seeing in National Geographic magazine pictures. So we walked through terrace croplands up to a hilltop with, uh, you know, another temple on top and got, I think, some the, the best views I, I had the uh, on the entire trip. This, you know, just a river valley that stretched in either direction, terraced fields, temple, is hard to beat. So as I said, that was the easy day. Um, I want to talk to you a little about modern day and like culture. One thing you may have heard is that they have a national dress in, uh, in Bhutan. I mean, you might've heard it on this show in the previous episode about Bhutan. And it's not that that's not true. It is true, but it is usually referred to as mandatory that people wear their national dress. And I don't know what the letter of the law says, but it's just not true in real life. It doesn't mean it's not largely true. People do wear, uh, the men wear what's called a go, 
and women wear what's called a kira. And it's not that they don't wear them a lot. They do. But it's clearly okay to walk around without your go or your kira on. Uh, young people in particular, you will find wearing perfectly modern clothes uh, with sullen looks on their faces and converse on their feet, just like you would any other teenager. Um, but uh, adults too. So depending on what they're doing or what time of day it is or where they're headed, uh, there's plenty of opportunity to not be wearing your go should that be uh, be your inclination. Now, my guide talked about how he actually used to feel that way. He used to feel like he wanted to get his go off as soon as he could, but he's had so many uh, interactions with visitors who say, no, it's it's beautiful. I love your go. The fact that you have that here and is so unique is really special. And so now he's a convert and actually takes a lot of pride in wearing his go and doesn't feel, you know, any, any frustration with it doesn't mean he wears it every day, all day. Um, he doesn't, but, uh, but it was interesting that, that he, uh, he sort of has gone through a transformation over time as, as relates to his uh, his national dress. Uh, also, the same guide talked uh, talked to us about music, you know, so that you, you can hear that like the lute is the national instrument of Bhutan. But he pointed out that, of course, uh, if you're interested in getting girls, you're better off with a guitar. And so even though he couldn't play guitar very well, he would bring a guitar with him to school every day just to look cool and try to pick up checks. So again, uh, pretty, pretty standard teenage stuff. <laughs> um, and, and during the process of producing this episode, I went down the rabbit hole a little bit on, uh, modern music videos from Bhutan and they are brilliant. Uh, most of them have a nice combination of traditional national dress and modern styling, often with guitars, sometimes mixed in with lutes and, you know, a bunch of other instruments as well, but it focuses on sort of the normal stuff, uh, mostly unrequited love. Uh, yes, sometimes, uh, love that's there, but misunderstood and, and expressing frustration on not being able to understand, uh, women. So again, pretty normal stuff. And, and then the last thing of note on, on Bhutanese culture that I experienced firsthand, at least is, uh, honking. I think it's it's not that people honk a lot in Bhutan. I mean, maybe a lot by my standards. Um, it's not that the honking is uh, is too often. It's how it is used that is uh, so different from the U.S. in an interesting way. In the U.S., as you probably know, 90% of the time you're honking, the message you're expressing is you over there need to be doing something different, most often getting out of my way. And then like 10% of the time, you're saying, hey, I'm about to do something, and I just wanted to let everyone know. And in Bhutan, it's the reverse. 90% of honks are, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I'm about to do something, most likely pass you on a very narrow, very winding mountainous road. While only 10% of the time, a person honks to say, you're doing something wrong and you should correct yourself. Yeah. 
If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. And and you know what company I'm talking about. It's basically the one company online. Uh, you know, you probably shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases or you have your standard selection of home goods delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. It'd be great if we could all avoid them somehow. But, you know, it's like climate change. What we really need is regulation, not just personal choices. So until we can get some anti-monopoly trust-busting legislation passed, a lot of us are going to continue to make the not-completely-irrational choice of shopping there. So whether you feel your conscience needs soothing or not— you can support the production of this show by using our affiliate link and redirecting some of those purchasing dollars to us. Your shopping experience is identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. So to get the link, go to bestoftheleft.com and use our banner to click through to either the U.S., Canada, or U.K. stores and bookmark the page so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. It's now day five, and to recap, we began our trip in the westernmost valley that we visited, Paro, transferred to the central valley of Timpu, and uh, made it as far east as uh, Punaka. And now on day five, the trip is beginning to wind down. We're going to have to come back in the other direction. So we are mercifully transported by bus over the mountain pass back to Timpu, where we begin a ride in the afternoon. And here's what you need to know about an afternoon ride in Bhutan. They don't allow planes to land in Paro after 3 p.m. because the winds are too high and they pick up every afternoon like clockwork. So, you know, we all thought that climbing that mountain was tough. And we pretty much all agreed that fighting the wind to uh, to ride down one of those valleys was worse. We didn't think it could be worse, but it turned out to actually be worse. So we had a pretty low-key day that day. No, no extracurriculars or anything. We were quite spent. Now, I want to talk a little bit about their environmental regulations. Uh, during the trip, we had the opportunity to speak with some of the uh, some representatives from the Bhutan Foundation, which it seems to be a sort of public interest, quasi-governmental organization full of people who are very well-meaning environmental advocates and scientists and general bureaucrats trying to get stuff done. And and so a handful of these bureaucrats came and and spoke with us. And, And the one that stuck out the most in my mind was the guy who's sort of in charge of their environmental protection policies, short term, midterm and long term. And what really stuck out to me is that this guy seems to be very opposed to bans of any kind. And here are the two points that he made to really express his feelings on on the matter. The first is that as a Buddhist country, they very much want to push uh, the idea that Buddha said that uh, happiness comes from learning to 
enjoy and appreciate what we already have and learning to not covet what you don't have. He probably didn't use the word covet. So, okay, like, that's great. I totally agree with it. It's definitely not a government policy, but in a Buddhist country where you may be able to convince a lot of people uh, through Buddhist philosophy, like, I'm totally down with that being part of your messaging policy. But when he talked about not being in favor of banning anything, this is what he said. He said, what we need to understand is that we all have the mind of a child. And imagine when you have a kid who you do not want to play with a TV remote. If you tell them that under no circumstances are they allowed to touch the television remote, then of course that is the only thing they want to do. And so the best way to effectively regulate people's actions is to let them do whatever they want and trust that they'll make the right decisions. Because if, if we tell them to not do something, then they'll only want to do it more. So if we want them to stop, then we should tell them to do nothing or, you know, or not tell them to do anything in particular, let them do whatever they want and see how it goes. And I thought that sounds a lot like laissez-faire American style <laughs> non-regulation that his, uh, you know, it ended up with like such a catastrophe that we had to build the EPA just so our rivers would stop catching on fire. So I was not excited about that answer. And, uh, you know, during the q and I raised my hand and, and pressed him on that and asked, like, you know, could you talk more about your policies um, regarding environmental protection and, and, you know, your long-term goal of not becoming a consumerist society. And, and, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, let's, let's learn from other countries here. Let's, let's talk about, first of all, like a plastic bag ban. Let's talk about banning advertising to children to, uh, you know, prevent them from being indoctrinated from an age before they're able to comprehend what an advertisement is like th these are the types of things i'm thinking and he just said well i i think i already answered that that uh you know buddha said we should be happy with what we have and not crave more and we all have the mind of a child so we should let everyone do whatever they want and i was like all right but that makes me pretty nervous because the best way to stop a problem down the road is to prevent it upstream from becoming a problem prevent Everyone from becoming consumers by something like banning advertising to kids or, you know, prevent an enormous amount of plastic waste by banning plastic bags and so forth. And those aren't the types of things that, you know, as he was saying, we all have the mind of a child. Plastic bags are not something that people are clamoring for. Advertising at children is not something people are clamoring for. It's not the sort of thing that they would uh, get on the black market if it was banned. So I'm worried about what's going to be happening downstream if they don't do something more than talk about Buddha uh, when trying to avert a full-blown consumer society. Because they're already seeing some effects of it. They need, you know, in addition to policy, they need a program right now to mitigate their litter problem. You know, I didn't know about this until I got there, but the effects of tourism are being felt and a lot of tourist spots are covered in litter. And there are also signs all throughout the country telling people it's illegal to litter. But if you don't have a partnering program that actually cleans up 
the litter that's there. Well, any sort of policy to say it's illegal to throw your garbage onto this pile of garbage is not going to do any good for anyone. So they need to clean up what's there to create an environment in which it does not feel okay to throw crap on the ground. Right now, unfortunately, it does appear to feel okay to throw crap on the ground. So, you know, this, this is what I'm talking about. Like, plastic bottles is a big one. Foreigners pretty much aren't allowed to drink anything except from a plastic bottle because, you know, you're, everyone's gut is a little bit different. It's used to different uh, organisms. And so they're really concerned that anyone would ever get sick drinking the water. You know, the locals drink the water out of the tap and they're fine with it. Foreigners, you just never know. So they give everyone plastic bottles and those plastic bottles end up in gutters next to temples and stupas. It, it's it's really unfortunate. So yeah, when when he answered... I don't believe in banning, and, and I try to avoid bans in every context. I thought, boy, do you need a whole lot more nuance in your policy on uh, what you do and don't ban. And now we have arrived at day six, the last full day of Climate Ride, and they have saved the best for last. Day six is dedicated entirely to a hike to the tiger's nest. And if you just Google the the term Bhutan, the Tiger's Nest Monastery is guaranteed to be, you know, within the top five uh, pictures that comes up after, you know, like a map of the country and, you know, maybe a Zong. But the Tiger's Nest Monastery is something that, like, America has no equivalent for this. It, it is like the the beating heart of the religion in uh, Bhutan and is just universally understood to be uh, the the central focus of the origin of Buddhism in Bhutan. It, it's it's the place at which they believe the uh, the second Buddha came and meditated in a cave on a wall in a big canyon when he was coming and uh, and helping spread Buddhism to the region. So. This monastery has been there for hundreds of years, but has burned down a couple of times. The most recent time was in the 1990s. And so the leader of our tour group, this guy Searing, was actually one of the first on the scene to witness this. And as I said, there is no equivalent to America. Like we, we can't really quite understand the emotional connection people have uh, in Bhutan to Tiger's Nest Monastery. But comparisons were made to 9-11, obviously not quite the same, but uh, it, it was that sort of an emotional impact, just, you know, uh, an overwhelming sense of grief and loss, even though the loss of life during the most recent fire was relatively small. You know, a few monks were killed, but the emotional toll taken by losing 
something so iconic and, and so ingrained in the fabric of the country and the culture was um, was something that I don't think anyone can really quite grasp outside Bhutan. But Syrian, the leader of our group, besides being the first on the scene and and telling a very emotional story of of having to witness that, uh, honestly, um, himself. It was really, really interesting guy. Um, he speaks with amazing eloquence and, and passion on basically any subject. Uh, you know, he, he talked frequently about his connection to Buddhism, but, but his understanding of it as much more akin to a philosophy and a way of life instead of a religion. He talked regularly about how uh, there's a bit of the spirit of the Buddha in all of us, and Buddhism is just the path to helping bring that out. And, and you know, science is beginning to prove a lot of uh, Buddhist philosophy true in, in terms of its understanding of the workings of the mind and, and all of that. But he talked about how Buddhism is just a way of life that helps bring out the best in humanity. And, uh, you know, he talked about, you know, the, the importance of protecting nature and fighting climate change in a way that brings a tear to your eye. He, he talks about humanity as being basically one big family divided only by artificial borders. Uh, on, on a lighter note, he, he, talked to us once about how he is vegetarian for two months out of the year as part of his uh, Buddhist practice. So I asked him, I was like, hey, that sounds great. What's stopping you from being vegetarian the other 10 months? And he said, because it would uh, annoy his boss at home too much. (laughs) In other words, his wife likes uh, meat too much for him to go vegetarian full time. And so here's here's the big story uh, of the week. The last full night we were there, I was chatting with Sarian away from the rest of the group, and he asked you know, sort of the normal series of questions and and asked what I did for a living. And uh, when I told him that I produced a podcast, you know, I asked if he had heard of podcasts. Certainly, fewer people in Bhutan are familiar with podcasts than in the U.S. And you know, he got that glean in his eye that that people sometimes do when they have found a fellow podcast listener. And so rather than answering, he pulled out his phone and just started showing me all of the podcasts that he is already subscribed to and explained that he listens all the time as part of his regular education to keep himself sharp. And so naturally, he was excited to subscribe to the show. And as far as I know, he's a new listener. But uh, if, for anyone who listened to the previous episode on Bhutan, of course, I, I had the realization, um, well, I, I guess he's about to go and, and listen to the episode on Bhutan I produced, including the clips and commentary about uh, the refugees from Bhutan. And so I, I didn't want to just let him know that I produce this show and to have him go listen to it and not let him know, hey, by the way, I I did talk about this very sensitive subject that I admittedly don't know that much about and just sort of learned about, but am not particularly liking what I've been learning recently. And 
as I said on the show, you know, if I happen to run into any royalty or politicians in Bhutan, I would certainly ask them about the Latsampa refugees from Bhutan. And uh, I didn't get that opportunity, but I did end up accidentally having this conversation with our uh, tour group leader. So quick recap, back in uh, sort of beginning in the 1970s, uh, Bhutan was beginning to open up like their first hotel ever that existed opened in 1974 to give you a sense. And so sort of in that same time frame, people of Nepalese ethnic origin were coming into Bhutan, usually as laborers of some sort, construction, uh, farm work, that sort of thing. And uh, the country needed them. But it was also a source of tension, which is something that Americans are very familiar with. And in 1988, the government census uh, led to the branding of many ethnic Nepalese as illegal immigrants. And that labeling is what gave legal cover for everything that came next and continues to very much shape what many people see today, uh, you know, as uh, what happened. So, Basically, the the census showed that there were a lot more Nepalese people than they might have uh, realized, and this brought fear with it, as it often does, possibly fear of challenges to the status quo of the political order, um, fear about threat to their borders. They'd been seeing, you know, annexations of land uh, near their borders, political upheavals happening in the surrounding regions, including in India and Nepal. And so those fears led to the implementation of the now famous One Nation, One People policy, which imposed policies like the national address requirement and banned teaching classes in a language other than the standard Zonka Bhutanese language, which of course prevented the Latsampa people who were from Nepal from speaking Nepalese and so on. So, you know, this policy was sort of framed as an effort to create a national unity, but of course it also had the effect of very much antagonizing this large minority group in the country who didn't share the same cultural and linguistic traditions. They're trying to fit everyone into a square hole and, uh, you know, all the round people just don't fit. So that's going to cause more uh, contention than there was before. You know, so there was backlash naturally. There were protests, there was violence, uh, and, and, you know, it was all the government needed basically to begin pushing out around 100,000 of these Latsampa people out of the country. They were pushed into India, and India sort of shuttled them over to Nepal, where they sat in refugee camps for, I don't know, about 15 years before the UN started resettling them into other countries, primarily the United States. So I'm sure that like the violence that the protesters were committing was terrible, and I probably would have advocated against it had I been there at the time. But, you know, as MLK concisely phrased it, riots are the voice of the unheard. So it's unconscionable to condemn the actions of a group like that, even if they're violent, without also making sure to include consideration of the circumstances that group is responding to. So that that's sort of the... The background. And I'll tell you, my emotional process of learning about that story was sort of amazing. I got to watch myself in real time 
hear like just a glimmer of this story and think like, wow, that's, that's an outlying story. That doesn't say, I mean, I'm trying to make a show about like what's going on in Bhutan now. I probably don't need to include that. And then it just sort of like bored a hole in my brain and I kept thinking about it. And I decided, no, like, I think I do need to learn a little bit more about that. And I would learn a little bit more and I would still try to convince myself like why I don't need to pursue this further or why I don't need to make a big deal out of this. And it was this amazing process of my emotional sense of understanding of the story of Bhutan, finding this, this uh, bit of news that was so out of the ordinary from the rest of what I knew that I, I wanted to reject it. And so I think, I think that a lot of people do that. I think maybe a lot of journalists do that. I think, I think there are really interesting reasons for why this story doesn't get broader coverage. And so, as I said, Syrian asked me what I did for a living and we ended up having this discussion. And so I just asked, you know, sort of very, gentle, broad questions, not, not accusatory or anything. And, and really just trying to learn, trying to get a, just an average Bhutanese perspective on, on the story, because honestly, that doesn't appear in news stories very often. You don't get the Bhutanese response. I think because they don't often comment on it. It's just a topic they prefer to not discuss. And so what what Syrian said in, in, in you know, sort of multiple times in rather concise answers is that, you know, he recognized that there was an unfortunate time in the past where this happened, but that it was a simple immigration issue that they had to deal with. And then he repeated multiple times that their conscience is clean and that everyone is happy now. And it's a difficult conversation to have. First of all, I wasn't prepared to have it. It, it came by surprise. I didn't think that this tour group leader was the person who needed to be confronted about any of this. I, that, that, that wasn't my plan or intention, but it was very interesting to, to hear this perspective from, from someone who had spoken so eloquently about sort of the oneness of humanity and the artificiality of borders to, to talk so matter of factly about an immigration issue and a hundred thousand people who had been forced into great suffering and, and to describe that as a simple immigration issue and that the Bhutanese conscience is clean. And, and then the one that really got me is to, to say that everyone is happy now. I thought who, who's included when you say everyone because it's not not everyone who I've heard of who's involved in this story. The suicide rates of the Bhutanese refugees in America is twice the average uh, of average American citizens. So I don't think that everyone is happy. And under my philosophy, which I don't think Siri knows, but would probably agree with, my political philosophy is to reduce suffering. And and under that concept. I haven't heard any persuasive argument justifying the expulsion of the refugees, you know? And so 
we're all fed our own propaganda, the U.S., no less than anyone else, obviously. But this is why it's so important to travel and to get outside perspectives. You know, sometimes uh, someone who's living outside of your country can actually have a clearer perspective about you than those right next to you, uh, your neighbors. And to be clear, I'm speaking from the perspective uh, of a citizen of a country that has caused a whole lot of suffering around the world and whose wars have created a whole lot of refugees, a country that even though we have done plenty of good has also had a hell of a lot to apologize for. And, and so we can say from experience that trying to right the wrongs of the past is never a waste of time because you never know how a problem will fester and come back to hurt you if left unattended. You know, for example, the Nazis looked at the U.S. Jim Crow laws as a model and a moral justification for their own racist laws. So that's, that's why I think it's never the wrong time to do the right thing and to try to make up for any past suffering that may have been caused if there is any chance that amends can be made. So one potential step in the right direction, uh, you know, Bhutan could say officially that the country regrets the suffering that has been caused. You know, even, even a justifiable policy can create suffering, and that should be acknowledged and regretted even if it was justifiable and had to be done, which I don't think is necessarily the case uh, in, in this case, but even if it were, you could still acknowledge and, and uh, sort of apologize for the suffering. And secondly, okay, so maybe all the refugees can't just be welcomed back. Uh, you know, would it be too much to create a process by which they could apply for naturalization? They could be given some sort of priority status and and basically change the rules of how they could be welcomed back. Not that they have to prove that they were citizens before, but could they just prove that they would be an asset to the society? And obviously, these are just a couple of ideas off the top of my head. They seem like they strike a reasonable balance to me. I'm sure that much smarter people than I could come up with much better solutions that helps save reputations and reduces suffering. And everything I experienced in Bhutan led me to believe that they are very concerned about how they are perceived. And this is exactly what I told Sarin when we talked, you know, my concern isn't about trying to condemn anyone for what was done in the past, but to start from now and create the best future we can and make sure that Bhutan deserves the high praise that they've been receiving from around the world and continues to receive that praise far, far, far into the future. And I think that bold yet humble policies that place humanity above pride or concerns about appearing to admit fault is a great way to look good in the eyes of the world. So here's my conclusion. Bhutan is a place that wins you over, as I think most places are capable of winning you over if you know where to look, what questions to ask, who to talk to. Um, Bhutan's strength, of course, is that they very much guide you and are more than happy to tell you 
exactly where to look and exactly what questions to ask to uh, to help draw you in to their country. And, you know, this may sound like propaganda, and to an extent it is, but it's comforting to see that after having sort of more or less welcomed and encouraged the moniker as the world's last Shangri-La, their new talking point really seems to be trying to distance themselves from that myth, you know, from the prime minister's TED Talk to the Bhutan Foundation bureaucrats, they really seem to be trying to shed the image as a Shangri-La and focus on the very real problems that the country has. So for me, I can feel perfectly comfortable loving Bhutan for all that it is with open eyes as a progressive-minded person loves anything, with forgiveness for imperfection in the past, with a willingness to criticize in the present for the sake of making improvements, and with hope for an ever better future. And if you have interest in visiting Bhutan, as I imagine you do, I really do recommend the tour company we use. You can find them at bhutanscenictours.com. And if you hadn't gotten the memo, you have to use a tour group to go to Bhutan. You can't just show up. So check them out, bhutanscenictours.com. And with that, thank you all for listening and stay tuned as I get back into the swing of politics as usual in the coming episodes. Yeah.